Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, January 5th, 2018. Happy New Year. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have uh, Elliot, Doug, Tiffany, and Erica. Hey, guys. Hello. 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 Hey. And uh, Gabby is out sick today, so we hope that she feels better soon. Uh, we have a big announcement uh, right off the bat. It's our three-year anniversary. Woo-hoo. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Long time. That's longer than most couples stay together. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. From the studio it's audience. Nice. <laughs> oh, it's been fun. It's a great show. We have fun doing it. Uh, so we appreciate the listeners. And uh, yeah, we're just going to move forward. So today we are talking about smartphones. The smarter your phone, the dumber your brain. Uh, so we wanted to get into not just the technology around smartphones, but like the psychology around them and uh, kind of what they're doing to us. Uh, and I'm going to implicate myself in a lot of this uh, today and be com- fully culpable in uh, overusing mm-hmm. my phone. Uh, but I'll just call <laughs> myself a test case and we'll go with there that. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we have some people who are listening on their smartphones. They can be mm. forgiven for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good use of the phone. Yeah. yeah. It's educational. Yeah. <laughs> but if anyone well, would it, like to call in and share or in the chat about their uh, addictive tendencies with their smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, solutions to addictive tendencies. Yeah. Yeah, there are a number of techniques that people use. Uh, and uh, I know that even groups are getting into it. Like a lot of people now are doing the thing where if they go out to eat, everybody has to put their phone face down on the table. And the first mm. person to pick it up has to get the check. <laughs> That's pretty good. So, of course, but everybody's got to leave at some point. So, I don't know how you work that out. (laughs) Becomes like a three day battle of wills. (laughs) Until everyone has to figure out the tip when they break out their phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that leads us to an interesting point. And that's, I think, one personally, one of the most fascinating things of of this whole issue, aside from the obvious. you know, technological advances, which are, are fascinating to me personally, are the um, <clears throat> the effects that this has on our psychology. And kind of uh, in a similar way to, I don't know if you've heard that, uh, and I honestly don't even know how true this is, but I'm pretty sure that the Druids had a policy where they wouldn't allow their new initiates to write so that they had to memorize everything. Uh, and that increased their their brain power, and they were able to pass down oral traditions, like memorizing these mm. huge verses, uh, because that's just what they did. And when you train your brain that way, you can do that kind of thing. But we have the uh, the entire information payload of the planet at our fingertips. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it's not inspiring us to think that hard. Yeah, and I, th- I think there was other <clears throat> um, documented uh, kind of cases where people were kind of against the idea of writing things down or the idea of books um, of putting knowledge into books just because it kind of degrades it in some way. Like you're not using your brain anymore. It's like by externalizing all that information, you no longer are kind of exercising that muscle to kind of make sure you remember it all. And yeah, it just makes the brain a little bit lazier. I mean, it's, it's interesting, but I, I do, I think books are quite handy. <laughs> I like writing. I think those things are, are, are goods, but it is it is curious that that you know the just a another kind of progression here where we've come to with like computers and internet and all that kind of stuff like 
is it really making us way more stupid? Do you yes. think that there was a group of people, like when books first came out, that were protesting that it's going to dumb us all down? Sure. <laughs> I think probably. it probably was, yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel like I did. Like, it's kind of like, you know, what you were saying, Jonathan. I don't know for sure that this is true, but I seem to remember hearing about that, that there were people actually, like, protesting against it. Or at least, you know, say, like saying it, like not necessarily like actually having protests or anything like that, but yeah, but, uh, but saying that it was a mistake. It, alleging that Gutenberg is Illuminati. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> trying to dumb us down. Well, Gutenberg's the inventor of the printing press, by the way. It <laughs> <laughs> was a very highbrow joke. I guess it was. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they did an experiment. A group of researchers did. Uh, they got 800 people, all who use smartphones, and they divided them up. And uh, one group had to keep their phones in a different room. One group kept it in a bag. And one group had it on the table. And then they made them do a computer test where they had to concentrate and focus really hard. And the people who had their phone in a different room way outperformed all the others. So even if the phone is turned off, yeah. just sitting on the table is enough of a distraction. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But I can I can understand it, you know, in a way. Like, it's kind of like just having it there is enough to, to be a distraction that it's in your mind, like you're thinking about it. Even if it's turned off and you, there's no notifications, kind of like these push notifications kind of constantly dinging in your environment, it's kind of like you see it there and it's, a, it, it's like there's some brain power that's kind of like thinking about that. Yeah, trying not to look at your phone takes mental energy. Mm. Well, I think in a way you can almost, if you want to do like a, a strategy to slow yourself down, you can think of yourself as a, a user of the like um, like a software user if you were going to do user testing or something like that so you could take advantage of your own stupidity in a way and i mean this in the, in the most loving way <laughs> but uh so a, a lot of studies for instance like with ratings and stuff in interfaces they show that uh, the, uh it, you increase the cognitive load by adding more options because people now have extra milliseconds that you're trying to think of what choice they want to make i realize hmm. how dumb this sounds but when you increase the cognitive load for yourself to achieve what you might, you know, habitually want to do, like check the phone, if you turn it off, that adds an extra couple seconds of you having to turn that phone on, which will then dissuade you from doing it if you have a little bit of willpower to back it up. So whereas if the phone is like in airplane mode, you can easily swipe and turn it back on and look at it. So that's too easy. So you have to turn it off hmm. so that you actually have to turn it on and then you're like, ah, okay, I'll need to do something else. Hmm. Um, so you take advantage of your own like impatience and, and ignorance. <laughs> so it's basically you have to in, insert artificial kind of blocks to actually using it. Kind of. I that's mean, my personal theory. Well, I, mean, I, I think there's some um, basis to that. Like I've heard of people doing similar things with like other sorts of addictions, or you know, if they're trying to lose weight or something like that, they'll put you know the junk food in like a combination lock area. So it's like, well, I'll have to go through and actually do the whole you know, combination and actually get it out of there and stuff. It's like more, the more of like a pain in the ass it is to actually get that reward. It actually will, I guess, uh, 
make you less likely to do it, or like you said, give you a little bit more. Or it's like it's kind of like those. Um, do you ever see those? Uh, those they were kind of like little cases for your credit card. And I guess they were kind of uh, a struggle to get them out or something like that. And the whole oh, idea was just funny. to put a couple of seconds of things between of time between you actually just like handing over your credit card and and you know versus uh, you know actually having some kind of impediment to doing that. Yeah, it's almost like that theory on addiction. Instead of saying one day at a time, fifteen minutes at a time. Mm. Sure, he could go for fifteen minutes without turning it on or using. Sure. It. Well, when you're struggling know. with something, I mean, it's a, it's a battle between your willpower and the ease of access of what your kind of programmatic self wants to get to, right? So you don't mm-hmm. want to do this thing, but you're habitually, you know, already kind of set in that pattern. Um, so making it harder to do basically transfers some of that power to your willpower and makes that part easier. Mm. But for the yeah. real hardcore smartphone users, would that even work? I mean, does the average person even think of their phone in that way? That's a hard just, one, yeah. It just seems like it's a extension of them, so they wouldn't even consider limiting yeah. their use. Yeah. And there's yeah. even a, a phobia. It's called nomophobia. <laughs> and it's the fear of being without your smartphone. Huh. Mm-hmm. Does that stand for something? Nomo? It's N O M O phobia. Did you say no mobile? Oh. Is it probably <laughs> no mobile? Oh, maybe. Yeah, no mobile. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Although that kind of sounds like you're afraid of the mobile. <laughs> so was there a statistic that at least 40% of Americans say that they can't live without their smartphone? That's a pretty strong statement. I mean, it's obviously mm-hmm. an exaggeration because they can live without their smartphone, but the fact that they have such a emotional tie to it is kind of worrying. Mm. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting because what you guys were saying a second ago, like that um, there are a lot of people out there who, it seems like there's a somewhat of a divide. Like there's a lot of people out there who basically don't think that there's a problem at all. And they're kind of like, they're fine with the fact that they're constantly hooked to their phone and, um, you know, getting little dopamine hits every 10 seconds when a notification comes through. And then there's people who kind of recognize that there's something wrong, that maybe they don't want to be so dependent on these things. And it's funny because on, it, it, it's kind of ironic because this person was complaining about it on Facebook, but basically was saying that they were considering getting rid of Facebook. This was on my one of my, um, I hesitate to say friends, but people on my Facebook feed who was saying, you know, they wanted to get rid of Facebook because, you know, they found that they were basically a slave to it. And I think that that kind of goes for all different, uh, you know, phone applications and things like that. You do kind of end up being a slave to to these kind of notifications and constantly like little pings and blips and stuff. And you just, mm. you know, snap to attention and you have to deal with it right away. But it's funny that I, I, I find that there are kind of two different types of people out there, like people who really don't think it's a problem and those who kind of are like, you know, I don't like this. Yeah, I think part of it comes down to age too. Like there's a generation mm. like our generation who can remember a time when there weren't cell phones and when the only phone you had was in your house mm-hmm. versus like my little nieces and nephews where they were born into the era where everybody had a cell phone. So it's mm-hmm. normal to them. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, well, and I think one of the, the contexts about this, too, and we're talking about phone, and you said that the nomophobia thing made me think of this, that it's not just uh, phones. The phones are a big part of it, but it's devices as well. In, mm. in my life, I mean, I'm not a normal use case because I work in tech, right? So I have two towers, two laptops, an iPad, and an iPhone, and then <laughs> numerous older devices that don't really get used that much anymore, but I use for testing stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm not a, like, normal case. So I use my phone, like, all day, and the device, and the, and the iPad, and the laptop for various things, and they, they work with each other, and I get notices on one for something on the other, and all this kind of stuff, but... um you know, I'm not, I can't complain because you choose your job, right? I've chosen this situation that I'm in. So I could just mm-hmm. as, e- not, not as easily per se, but everybody's direction is up to them. I could do woodworking if I wanted to and then, you know, put the phone down. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, uh, you know, I guess I'm not willing to make that much of a drastic life decision just to use my phone less. That's really what <laughs> it comes down to, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I'm fascinated with the technological aspects of this because I was working in interface design starting in like 2000, so years ago. And uh, at that time, I remember when we got our first touch screen and it was incredible. You can touch the screen? Are you kidding me? You know, like, yeah, I've seen this yeah. on the kiosks, but I've never actually, you can touch and drag something or you can toss something. It'll bounce off the corner of the screen. Like, it was incredible. And so we were just geeking out over this stuff and figuring out new ways to do things and at the time, we were doing interfaces that were in, in cars. So you get a little, you know, like a six-by-four-inch screen or whatever. Anyway, point being, as time has gone along, you see the transition from now, like, kids are not necessarily familiar with what a mouse is for a computer because everything is touch screen. <laughs> really? um, kids are using social media at, like, six years old. At, with their parents' consent, they have groups of friends. You know, they have, like, Playdate Facebook groups. Like, all of this has come culminated from before we couldn't imagine that you could actually touch a screen mm-hmm. less than 20 years ago to the point where you ubiquitously have access to anything that you want on, in your pocket. And the, the potential for education is what really grinds my gears because you could, if you had the proper motivation, give yourself the equivalent of a seminar of, of college ed- or a semester of college education in like a week, just using mm-hmm. these devices, you know, and then motivation and, and, uh, you know, self-learning. Um, but they're not used for that. They're used for law cats and Snapchat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and porn. Yeah. Candy yeah. <laughs> so we, I, I, they should be making us smarter, you know, right? The logical conclusion is that we have this incredible network of data and information. We should be getting smarter. And I think that some people are like the people that work with that, but it's, it, it's like, a, it's a distinction between the hardcore nerd community and everybody else, mm-hmm. which is not fair, you know? Yeah, because it kind of seems like the 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 opposite is happening. Because I mean, yeah, you could do you know a whole kind of college ed- education from your phone or from your laptop or something like that. But it seems like because of all these built-in distractions and stuff, it's like you you, you don't see people using it that way. Um, because I mean, how much learning are you going to do if you're constantly getting like Facebook notifications or Instagram notifications or something like that? It's like, oh, you know, I'm studying you know astrophysics, and then it's like, oh wait, somebody liked my Instagram photo. Well, there's some researchers in London. They say that giving a kid a smartphone is like giving them a gram of cocaine or Mm. a bottle of wine. So kids these days are all on Instagram and Snapchat. 
and looking up porn and sending naked photos of themselves to other kids, hopefully. Um, but I don't know. I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around how addictive these things are, basically because I don't consider myself a phone addict. Mm. Uh, how many times do you think you check it a day? If I get a text. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have any notifications turned on. I rarely get on Facebook. Mm. I don't have email notifications turned on to my phone. Like I'll, If I'm away from my computer and I need to check an email for something, if I'm... Uh, downloaded a boarding pass or something like that or need to check in when I don't have a computer, I'll use my phone for that. But I don't use it for banking. I don't mm. use it to buy anything like off of Amazon or anything. Mm-hmm. And I just basically use it for phone calls and to make texts. And sometimes if I need to look up something and I don't have my phone, um, don't have a computer around me. Mm. Yeah, I'm with Tiffany. I use it to check the weather. <laughs> I don't even use it for that. I just go outside. Whatever the weather is, <laughs> the weather is. <laughs> Which, well, I think uh, you guys are in the minority, though, because yeah. I don't. I I I recognize like that's a that I think is a, a kind of a good way to use the the technology. It's kind of like what do I really need, and kind of paring things down. But I I don't think that the majority are doing that. No. Yeah, I agree. I think it's great, uh, but yeah, I don't think the majority are doing that. I, 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 there's another inspiring story. It's, I don't get if you guys are familiar with um, a comedian named Ari Shafir. Uh, uh, he's funny. Hey, look him up if you want. Um, he's a dirty comic, so be forewarned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he, uh, in this group of comedians that I listen to, they've been talking about this. He took off on a trip and dumped his smartphone and got a quote-unquote dumb phone, like an old flip phone. And took off mm. to like Tibet and uh, you know Eastern Asia for like six months and just disappeared. And then he came back and it was like, you know, where did you go, dude? We thought you were dead, you know. And he's like, nope, I'm here. Everything's fine. All the contracts are still in place. You know, your life went fine. I had great experiences. Nobody's the worse for it. And mm. it came down to the fact that everybody was just pissed that they couldn't get a hold of him. Mm. That was really the thing. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. You know, not they were yeah worried, but at a certain point, the actual like the anger about not being able to find the person was more potent than the worry about whether they were safe. Which is interesting because that comes down to kind of the whole social pressure thing, right? Like, I mean, there's kind of two sides to this. On the one hand, it's like you kind of feel this sort of anxiety for not, you know, any time there's a notification, your your compulsion is to check it. And, you know, on the one side, it's kind of like you're afraid you're going to miss something and there's a certain level of anxiety there. But there's also this kind of social pressure, the immediacy of everything. It's like I sent this person an email five minutes ago and they haven't responded. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's kind of an anger there. So it, they not it's like kind of me weird. anymore? Yeah, exactly. It's like I'm going to lose all my friends and family because I didn't, you know, respond to an email promptly enough or a text. That response really is fascinating. Yeah, I think I think of email now, if I really am honest about how I feel about it, as though it were a letter. Like if I, I'm going to send an email and, okay, that's now out being delivered and I'll hear back when I do. And now if I want a more immediate contact, I'll go through a chat app so I can see whether the person is online. I know they'll probably respond quickly and I can see when they're typing. So all of these feedback mechanisms are, are <laughs> like putting you in the room with that person staring at them like, talk back to me, you know. 
iPhones too doesn't it have that thing where if your text gets read, it actually says read or delivered. Yeah. So yeah, oh. delivered and then read. Yeah, so yeah. you can see if they got it or if they opened it. So yeah, yeah. I actually had a, 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 a friend who she's an artist, and um, she sent out like uh, an email newsletter, kind of giving updates on her art and where she's having exhibits and all this kind of stuff. And she actually confronted me one time for not opening one of them. And I didn't even know that this was <laughs> this was possible in email at the time. I was kind of like, "How do you know that I didn't read it?" But she's like, "You didn't read my my update," and I was like, "Oh, uh, sorry." So now it's like constantly, like just as soon as I see them, I just open it, and you know I might not even read it. I just hopefully she's not listening. <laughs> yeah, you know it's fun to put yourself in the context of like not having a phone when you do get that kind of a message where you know the person expects you to respond quickly, and you think if we didn't have this system in place, would they even come over? You know, probably not. <laughs> not for this. You know. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of the really detrimental effects that um, are occurring with the with the young children. Uh, mm-hmm. It was mentioned earlier that you know children who have been born, say in the past ten years, fifteen years, uh, having a a phone and having all of these digital devices and stuff. That's just the norm. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a, an article talking about one of the addiction therapists. Uh, in London, and she was basically saying about how um, children as young as 13 are now being treated for uh, digital technology addiction. Mm. So kids are actually going to these therapists because they are, or they consider themselves to be, or their parents consider themselves to be addicted. And when we kind of look at addiction and and the, the neurochemistry that underlies it, you know, many forms of addiction are essentially very similar <laughs> you know it's not like alcohol is um it's not like uh you know one type of addiction is different to another type of addiction it's it's like they all really have the a similar level of um of a negative effect on on the brain <laughs> and so uh we can she makes a comment that you know like we um we consider giving them alcohol or you know, explicit drugs uh, to be a bad thing, but then we give them iPhones. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you look at the effect that it has on the brain, it's exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fostering this this perpetual cycle of dopamine hits and then crashes mm-hmm. and hits and crashes and hits and crashes. And that is what can foster the, this addictive type personality. Um, and I guess, I mean, I'm I'm concerned to see where this is going to go. Uh, over mm-hmm. the next sort of 10 or 15 years because, uh, you know, I, I'm interested to see how how these effects are going to influence um, the relationships that these kids are having with other human beings. You know, there or was with another their parents. Article, or, or with their parents or, you know, or with anyone. Um, and whether these kids will actually be, be able to, to go on to form any healthy relationships. There was one article yeah. which is talking about, um, talking about research uh, if I remember correctly, it was saying that in, I think it was in the US, but correct me if I'm wrong, that a certain percentage of um, adolescents and millennials uh, actually spend more time on their digital devices, on their mobile phones, than they do speaking or interacting with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the, the IGN life. Yeah, I can see that being true, totally. 
And it basically talks about the change in just one generation. And one of the stats that was really crazy, because this researcher, it was in the Atlantic, they studied generational changes. And they were saying that since the iPhone came out in 2007 and the iPad, I think, was just a few years later, the rate of teen depression had skyrocketed mm. because of that social isolation. Like teens don't go out, you know, don't sneak out at night anymore. They don't joyride. They're not getting their driver's license because they don't need to go anywhere. They don't mm. date because everything sure. is through social media and they're not leaving mm. their home. So they're not going yeah. through that normal rite of passage of, you know, getting in trouble and breaking the rules and learning from their consequences. Or forming relationships and having breakups and suffering emotional stress yeah. from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, like if, oh, I'm sorry. Like, you know, if you think of it, it, it's it's frustrating to talk about. But if you think of it like from the young person's perspective, like if I play that person for a moment, I'm like, why would I get a driver's license? There's Uber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, exactly. I, don't, I don't need it. Why would I even do that? You know, and then we talk about where cars are going. You know, they, all the cars are going to be autonomous in 20 years. So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Mm. But, uh, you know, so we're going to le- we're going to lose the knowledge of, of how to, uh, you know, essentially read and self teach because everything is at our fingertips. And then we're going to lose the knowledge of how to drive and having having a car that you drive will be like a hobby. Mm. Or even um, the ability to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You're, yeah. You just get in the car and it goes where you want to go. And you don't have to know yeah. where you are. You don't have to know where you came from. Any of that. Yeah. And that's, I'm not being melodramatic. That will happen in the next 20 years. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, problems with uh, kids, there was one article actually that was, uh, it was a British article from the, the Telegraph. And it talked about how almost a third of children starting school are not ready for the classroom, lacking many social skills, having speech problems, not toilet trained. And um, although they didn't do any kind of study or anything like that to really get to the bottom of why this is, they were saying <clears throat> they think a lot of it is because basically their parents are constantly on their cell phones. So they're not actually interacting with their kids. I mean, that's just unbelievable. It's kind of disgusting, actually. It's like, you know, your phone is more important than your kid, than interacting with your kid, having a conversation. Well, if you think about it, the average person checks their phone 85 times a day, and that's a conservative estimate. Uh, And the average person spends about five hours a day interacting with their phone. That's more than a lot of people spend with family members. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like they have... Uh, intimate relationship with their phone but the problem is their phone really can't give anything back as far as emotional sustenance or social interaction really is i don't know it's kind of scary yeah i work in a school and i walk there because it's not very far from my house and uh mm-hmm. and i see it very often parents uh walking with their children looking down at their phone and i'm just thinking you know this car's driving past on the road and these you know toddlers three four year old children by the side of a pram with their mum and their mum's on their phone it's like you can't even imagine what <laughs> what could potentially happen you know it's <laughs> well speaking yeah. of that there was a story from a ted talk that i listened to and I think it was in Japan or maybe South Korea. 
and uh, a woman was walking with her toddler son, and she they were at an intersection waiting for the light to change, and she decided to look at her phone to pass the time. And I guess her son got away from her, and he got hit by a car. Mm. And he died. Shit. Because she wasn't there was paying a, attention. There was a similar case uh, in the UK, and it was it was a, an adult with learning disabilities, and he had a support worker. And um, and this is something that I think the police in the UK are going to start doing more and more. What happened was this 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 guy with learning disabilities. I think he fell into a pool. Uh, like a pond, and he drowned to death. Mm. And uh, and so what the police did was they um, worked out the the time frame with which it, the the incident could have actually happened, and they questioned the the support worker and everything. And then um and so they looked on they they confiscated his phone and they looked at his phone records, what he was looking at at the time, whether he was on his phone, and it turned out that the guy was actually. Um, he was on his phone doing something while this incident was meant to have happened, and he actually oh. got um, he got prosecuted. I think oh. he got done for manslaughter or something, or something like that. Um, and apparently, it's re- really common now is all of these incidents happening, like you know, people getting run over or falling in ponds and drowning because of, I guess, it's le- negligence <coughs> because the people who are meant to be looking out for them are too engrossed in, in this device. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, we saw that with the Pokemon Go, right, when, the, when that exploded yeah. and people were falling off bridges and getting hit by cars. And mm-hmm. Yeah, we see that with driving, too, that texting-related yeah. accidents or phone-related accidents are becoming more and more common. I was just thinking, Tiff, about what you said about the times during the day, so you said, like average of 85 times. Mm-hmm. So accounting for eight hours of sleep, which is generous, uh figure there's 16 waking hours in the day that's 960 minutes by about 85 is 11.3 so once every 11.3 minutes that seems generous to me too i would go once every three to five minutes mm-hmm. mm. did you just work that out on a calculator on your phone <laughs> no but i on my laptop i, <laughs> <laughs> I was just sorry if you did it it sounded head. smart though didn't it <laughs> i was gonna say that's a good math <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i think i mean that frequency when you really think about 10 minutes going by and if you're an average phone user i know it's sobering but it's i feel like it's got to be a lot more than that like mm-hmm. during times of active use uh, you're looking at multiple times a minute you know where you use or you might actually be looking at the phone straight four five to ten minutes so that's where this statistic makes me curious you know, so if I'm looking at it continuously for five minutes, is that now, you know, a hundred times or does that count as one time? So I it's hard think to really it counts as one that. time. Well, but, know. but, you know, it's be more potent than just actually just glancing at your phone. I think mm-hmm. like that intense time. I guess what I'm saying is it's a hard thing to quantify, but yeah. the, the, I think it's actually a lot more than what we think to the point where mm-hmm. it might even be staggering like 20 to 30 percent of your time throughout the day is actually on a device Hmm. yeah that's crazy well i think you can divide the users into categories like purposeful users they're actually using their phone for a specific task like they want to accomplish something versus people who just have their phone and they're just randomly swiping just to get that dopamine hit 
or they're just randomly uh, reacting to notification beeps or things like that. I think that there's a difference between Mm. those two. Like if you can't give up your smartphone completely, at least use your phone more purposefully. Mm -hmm. It also seems to be a thing where people pass time. Mm -hmm. A great place to observe is at the airport (laughs) where you look around and every single person is just on that device as a way to not feel that uncomfortableness that we all do in an airport when you're waiting to board. And you just don't want to be looking around watching people, which is one of the fun parts of being at the airport is people watching. <laughs> well, the law, that, that's kind of a lost art, I think. It really does yeah. seem like, I mean, it, it kind of like, you know, there's a uh, JP, what's his name? Uh, Sears. Sears. Yes, J.P. Sears video where he's talking about, you know, he's kind of being um, facetious about it, but it's kind of like he's kind of pointing out that, you know, when you're constantly have this this thing to kind of alleviate your boredom or something, you aren't kind of self-aware. And in those moments of kind of quiet and waiting and things like that, it's like, you know, it's an opportunity to kind of check in with yourself, um, which kind of gets done automatically, but also even like more consciously to kind of like see where you're at, see what kind of emotions you're feeling, like kind of being more self-aware. And it's like, the phone kind of completely allows you to not be kind of aware at all. And it's kind of like a, a way to kind of just completely disconnect it. So there's never any kind of uncomfortable silences or anything that's like that because you, you have this, this automatic distraction machine in your hand. Sure. Well, and some of the research shows that too, that it, it you lose empathy and connection with others. So having that phone in your line of sight causes you to pay less attention to the people you're around. And, I experience it a lot in my job where you're Mm. asking a question that's work-related and they're on the phone and they're not paying attention at all to Mm. what you're saying. Yeah. Do you think that some people purposely use their phones to not not have to interact with people? I'm guilty of that, yeah. They know this (laughs) You're guilty of that, really? Yeah. (laughs) I put my my earbuds in with nothing on sometimes just so people won't talk to me. I mean, in in a traveling context, like if I'm going through the airport or something, yeah, I'll do that. Or uh, if you see somebody like, I'm not cutting myself off to people that need help. You can tell the difference if somebody's coming up to you like, hey, I need help with something. But in the context where you can tell that somebody just wants to annoy you or, you know, like, um, is maybe going to ask her something that, you know, there's not a, a problem about all this kind of stuff. I will pull my phone out and like kind of look down as they're walking by. So you feel that cue that they're going to come at you. So you just take the phone out, look at the screen and like tap your thumbs on the screen. And then they walk. Like there. if they've got a clipboard or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I had an interesting experience on a Greyhound bus where a woman oh, like- did not have a phone and she stood up and said, I need to make a phone call. Does anybody have a phone? And everybody had a phone on the on the bus, and nobody said anything to her. They just looked at their phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although at the same time, I'd be pretty hesitant. It's like, you know, was it an emergency, or did the person just, you know, want to check in? I let in? her use my phone. <laughs> oh, that's good. 
Well, some people are very protective of their phones, considering what people do on their phones. Like they'll do their banking. There's all these pictures on their phones. Like I've gotten lots of warnings from people. Like if they take a picture at a family gathering and you go to look at the picture they just took and they're like, don't swipe, don't swipe. (laughs) (laughs) So people don't want people looking through their phones. Mm. Oh, sorry. That hit my funny bone because I've I've had that not in the context you might think, but where you hand somebody the the photo album like to swipe through, and you're like, oh, go back, just go back like five or six. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. No, they um, speaking of the uh, the travel thing, I, I think what's and again, I'm guilty of this too. But what's really fascinating to me about it from kind of a meta perspective is that you can now leave your house and insulate yourself in a bubble and go to a city that you've never been to before and with very little stress about how things are going to go get a hotel get a mm-hmm. get a uber um get some food at a nice right you can have the food brought to you by an uber driver um mm. you can look up where you're going you don't have to know the context of your surroundings or any, you don't even have to know what places look like mm-hmm. you just go there um so you can you can travel the country with this network of devices um, and take advantage of it in such a way that it makes your trip less stressful. Or you can also, uh, and I've done this, uh, rely on it too much to the point where you find yourself in the middle of, you know, uh, somewhere in California because you have no idea where you are uh, and you didn't look around, you know, <laughs> That's <laughs> just where very I basic find... like orientation practices. Yeah. I find the map app whatever when you use helpful if you get lost and you see the little mm-hmm. blinking blue light of where you are and where you need to be instead of trying to figure out on a map mm-hmm. a actual paper map so i think mm-hmm. something like that can be helpful it's when you rely on that to get to everywhere you go and you're not aware of your surroundings mm-hmm. yeah. so i don't like yeah. getting lost so i like to look at the street names and buildings around to figure out where I'm at. Yeah. 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 Which I think is being lost because of like what you said, there's that whole, what is it in the navigation app where basically it just tells you where you're going all the time and you're not paying attention mm-hmm. to the surroundings that you're in. Yeah. And now you have things yeah. like uh, Waze, which is another navigation app. That's not like Google maps, but they, they actually, it's, um, it's the, it, it also has user input. So if you come across an accident, you pull up the app and say, I get, you know, I hit an accident mm-hmm. here. Uh, so while you're using Waze, you're seeing all the user input about the environment, you know, on the highway and stuff. So that's cool from a tech perspective, but it's also like the amount of information is becoming so massive that, like you said, you don't have to rely on your own, uh, you know, navigation skills anymore unless you yeah. find yourself in a situation where you're screwed and you do, and then you don't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's definitely like a muscle that you need to work, you know, like navigation skills and stuff like you, you really, you know, how many, how many people do you know who can kind of just know, you know, I mean, there's some people out there who kind of just have this natural ability, but they know where North is. They're just kind of like, it's where's North. It's like, ah, it's right about there. I've never been one of these people, but I certainly never will be if I'm constantly relying on these devices as well. So I I, I definitely think that there's a, a art to navigation and, you know, you have to kind of work that muscle and like, you know, look at like some people are very good at kind of looking at uh, uh, landmarks and stuff and knowing where they are by where by the landmarks that are around them. And some people are terrible at that and they need to have kind of like a map or something like that or 
they know things more by left and right than they do by kind of cardinal directions. Yeah. But I think you do have to build it, as you said. Yeah, mm-hmm. You have to work it. If you, you don't work use it, it, you'll lose it. Yeah. I right. like to navigate by landmarks. I used to use a GPS that you plug into your car. Like if I was going somewhere I didn't know, which I think is okay. But eventually you have to give that up too or you'll never learn where you're going. Yeah. Like I moved to a new city and I used the GPS a lot at first. But then after a while I made myself put the GPS away because I would mm. never learn where I was going. And eventually I yeah. did because I had to drive a lot for work and then I knew everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this makes me think of a question. And it was in one of the articles that we read for the show. Is is it that smarter people use their phones less, and the dumber you are, the more you use your smartphone? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Let me check my phone. Hold on. <laughs> I need to Google no. that. Like if you have a personal history of thinking about things and trying to analyze things and figuring them out on your own, would you use your smartphone less than? another person who always wants things spoon-fed to them? It's an interesting question. I mean, I, I honestly don't think so, and this is not just because I want to defend myself, even though I do, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or that I necessarily think I'm smart, but I feel like that when you, there are those camps of people that can use a phone effectively and in very interesting ways regarding the information that's accessible through them, so I don't think using it more is necessarily a reflection on your intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, the the metric of how much you use it for, you know, unproductive tasks, that might be a way to look at it. I don't know. Well, what about always looking to the phone for an answer? It's kind of like another, somebody yeah. <clears throat> somebody once told like said something about how kind of the art of um you know, I don't know what you'd call it. I guess like the art of networking or something like when you're having a conversation and something comes up that's an unknown and people will sit there and kind of speculate, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's that or because of this, I think it's this. It's kind of like that that's disappeared because it's like, we'll just Google it. Let's figure it out. We'll, we'll you know, let's get an answer immediately. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I can see that like somebody, you know, there might be kind of two different types of people, people who want to kind of figure it out or at least, you know, get as close to the answer as they can before going for an easy answer versus yeah. people who just want the immediate gratification of knowing the answer. Yeah. I think the very the very process of trying to analyze something, trying to work it out in your own head and piece together dif- the different pieces of the puzzle, um, I, th- I think um, some people find that fun. I find that fun. I mm. like to do that. And mm-hmm. sometimes what I like to do is challenge myself or test myself, try to come up with the answer, and then um, at the end of that... S- Check, check check it out and see whether it was correct or not i i believe mm-hmm. that that process actually builds or, or um yeah i guess you could say builds or ingrains neural pathways you know it strengthens mm-hmm. neural pathways how to work out certain problems how how would you come to say you're trying to work out a problem re- related to i don't know biology or something you have to go through all of the different random pieces of information that are in your head and try to collate them all together in one place and to work out how they all fit together. And what you're doing is you're essentially, um, I guess you're solidifying that, that, that knowledge. You're solidifying it and making it more easily accessible. And then when you mm-hmm. check to see whether that was correct or not, 
um, then then I guess you can you can um, you can see see if you're on the right track. And if you weren't, then you can change how you would do it. And then if you were, you you know you keep trying to do that. I don't know. You know, some people don't find that fun. I I, I think that's a, a fun thing to do. It's kind of like it's sort of like a mental laziness to not do it. You know, it's like a an, an impatience and a not wanting to figure things out. And always uh, kind of going for the immediate, quick gratification of an easy answer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think maybe it kind of does come down to kind of like a mental laziness. Yeah. Don't and the problem is as well. Google effect, uh, rather than thinking through a problem and trying to find the answers for yourself, you rely too much on Google. Sure. Hmm. But, but what I think happens a lot is that by simply Googling a question you get the answer and you know it for maybe a couple hours, Mm -hmm. but then Mm -hmm. you may very well forget it the next day. It's like we have access to so, so much information, but how much knowledge do we actually have? It seems Mm -hmm. like we're losing knowledge for Mm -hmm. random bits of information. It's like Mm -hmm. there's no coherent line of information which which is part or which makes up you, like um, an understanding of something mm-hmm. it's actually just we get random bits of information and then i mean if you can't if you don't understand how how a, how a piece of information relates to something else then it's just information and it can go through one ear and out the other you know it's the process mm-hmm. of of learning it and learning you know how it relates to everything that mm-hmm. that allows that allows it to stick it, yeah. that's my opinion anyway yeah, I think, I think totally that right. it's it's kind of supported by like um, neurochem, well, neurobiology basically. Like you know, the whole idea that um, the more you fire a certain pathway in your brain, the more um, solid it becomes. Like the more you use it, the more it kind of uh, it's like exercise. The more you use the muscle, the more it uh, uh, the stronger it gets. It seems like that way with spelling too, with all these autocorrects. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't have to think about how to spell a word anymore or remember how mm-hmm. to spell it. I hate mm-hmm. that because sometimes I purposely want to misspell something that I'm writing in a text. And then autocorrect comes along and I have to push that back button to make it not correct when I'm trying to purposely mess up. Yeah. <laughs> but we have a caller, it looks like. Oh, good. Let's go ahead and take this call. Caller, are you there? Uh, yes, I'm here. Hi, who um, is this? I'm, this is uh, Javis. Hi, Javis. Hey, hey, hello. How are you guys doing today? Good. Um, Good. So I was a little, oh, I was a little late getting onto the show, but I did catch the point about mental laziness, and I just wanted to add a little bit of what I've observed in my everyday dealings with other people is that, um it's kind of becoming very apparent when you go to teach someone how to do something that's not exactly hard. And the two, here's the, are the two types of people I run into. The first, the first group will ask you many little questions about, let's just take something simple like installing an app and using a new app on your mobile phone, mind you. They will ask, okay, how do I install this? What store did you get this from? Okay, is it installed? And then other people will will at least try to figure it out themselves. 
and then they will come <clears> to you and ask you, okay, how did you get through this roadblock? And they will systematically go through the steps that they have tried. And I find it very interesting because um, in the field I work in now, <laughs> you're actually labeled if I'm a programmer, so you're, you're actually labeled as someone who either um, takes stock of what they've tried and then they'll come to you with a question, which is much more useful um, than someone that just tries to have someone baby feed them mm-hmm. the exact steps yeah. you go through. You don't, you, you don't learn anything if you want to be baby fed. You're actually worse off if you don't attempt to figure it out yourself. So that's yeah. just my two cents. That's a great point. There is that distinction, right, between people who will try to figure something out and then uh, if they're going to ask for help, they have the state of mind to bring data to the table. Like, hey, here's what I tried, but I'm really stuck, so I need something else. And then people mm-hmm. who are just like, it didn't work. You know, I don't know. It yeah. Didn't work. It's kind of like a, yeah, a helplessness. Yeah, and, you know, there's the stigma sometimes. Oh, this person, they ask a lot of stupid questions or they're bothering me by asking me too many questions. But I find that there is no question um, that's stupid if you've tried to figure something out and you're bringing new information. Maybe you've tried something that didn't work, but now you have, you've, you've put more information into the pot about, okay, you know... It's hard to explain. Well, at but, least um, you know what doesn't work, and you can share that with other people. Exactly. So that's that's adding, you know, that's being helpful even though you couldn't solve the problem yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an itch. Oh, I just can say, uh, Davis, since you're a programmer, you're probably familiar with Stack Overflow. Oh, yeah. 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 And for our listeners who don't know, that's a website where you can post questions related to code and development and stuff like that. They have a bunch of other things as mm-hmm. well, but it's really it's cool the way it's set up. They have kind of a unique model. But you will gain more uh, traction on the site and have better answers to, question, to your questions the more data you put into your actual question. So it's set up mm-hmm. to incentivize people to come to the table with all the steps that they've tried so that the answers then are more fleshed out. And then you get sort of demoted or you get a bad reputation if you're just like, hey, how do I do this without any supporting material? So I, that's an interesting model. You totally could just apply that to daily life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's um, that's an, for anyone that's never been to that site, that's an excellent uh, place to actually see what I'm talking about in real time. Um, it's kind of funny. There's some anonymity there, so people aren't going to beat around the bush. If someone comes on and they ask a question that's been answered a thousand times literally before uh, they ask the question, you'll see guys that will comment and say, hey, um, I just Googled this and found the answer to your exact problem. And then they'll downvote, like you said. Um, Whereas someone, you can go in there and ask your very first question as long as you um, are very detailed and say, hey, I Googled this, I looked other places and I couldn't find an answer, you won't find that. So even people that are anonymous that have no incentive of like being nice, um, you will see that they appreciate someone putting in the effort first before being baby fed or yeah. spoon fed the answer. So yeah. that, that was a good point. Well, uh, what do you think, uh, 
that uh, is is a good uh, approach aside from the like the no brainer of just try to look something up first. Um, when you uh, when you talk to people who come at you with questions like how do you handle people who you can see are obviously you know technologically deficient maybe somebody who's older or didn't grow up with technology and it's not their fault you know so they're like hey man I really don't understand this how do you deal with those situations? Um, I, I I'm gonna be honest here because I have I have parents that you know uh, they ask me a lot of technical questions and in general I. Tr- Sometimes you offer, uh, how do you deal with that? To be quite honest, you don't tell people what's possible with technology if you know that they're just going to ask you a bunch of <laughs> trivia. <laughs> yeah. You kind of I mean, dumb it down for lack of a better word or, or try to hide, you know, say, you know that there's a really cool thing that you could do here, but it's, it's going to be too much of a pain to get them to that point. <laughs> Or sometimes just do it for them because it's easier. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I actually had a tech guy say, I went to him with a question one time, and he actually said to me, um, so uh, is Google not working for you then? <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. Ouch. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I should go do that. <laughs> well, this kind of brings me to the fact that not all technology is evil. But I think that you lessen the evil of your technology completely or your technology being able to take over every aspect of life if you become a more purposeful active user of technology Mm. versus just randomly letting the technology dictate what you do and what you think Mm -hmm. i don't know if that does that make sense yeah Mm -hmm. it does i think as long as you're putting in the effort to actually figure things out and you use some technology to help you in that effort, then maybe it's not that bad. Yeah. I think it's a, there's a line between being a slave to the technology and used, utilizing the technology kind of in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do think that kind of takes a certain level of awareness. And uh, like I was talking about before, kind of pe- some people who, who don't really think that there's a problem versus those who do. I mean, I think there's a certain level of knowledge there where you kind of can recognize how this could be a trap and that um, you don't want to get stuck in that trap and take steps to kind of avoid it versus people who will just, you know, whatever's pushed at them, they'll use it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think retaining the information, too, there's certain things that, you know, you can uh, look up, like, I guess, uh, you know, if I let my ego get out of hand, I could say like, oh, I know how to build this thing, you know, like in my backyard. But the reason I know that is because I looked it up on YouTube three or four times. <laughs> and I'll probably forget that within like a week. But then there are other things that I might look up and try to learn and then repeatedly do that test. So now I know how to do that. So I've, I've mm-hmm. you know, integrated the, uh, the knowledge of how to do that. And that comes from the practice part. So you can get the data, but, um, you know, use it, utilizing it is a different thing and remembering it. Mm-hmm. So do we want to play that clip? Yes. Yeah. Let's add some levity. Yeah. Uh, J.P. Sears on winning your mind back and ending slavery to your device. Welcome to How to Win Back Your Mind. In this short teaching video, I want to give you some practical techniques that I use to help me win the war of losing my mind so I can freaking have my mind. 
um, coming at you live via this recorded video from Costa Rica. So let's jump in. Now that we've had some fun together via the parody video, how to become more addicted to your phone, uh, let's take talk about how we can win back our minds. And, and first off, let's not demonize the phone. I don't think you know, the phone, all these accessible devices that connect us to the world and potentially disconnect us from ourselves, I don't think they're bad. <clears throat> Clear my throat. I don't think they're good either. I think they are just potential. So the purpose of this video is for you and I to really take more control over our minds. So I'm going to start practical. Then we're going to end up a little bit more abstract. So let's streamline through this. The first practice that I'd invite you to consider using to win back your mind is, as I'm holding my phone this whole time, it's like, wow, am I really a hypocrite? I'm attached to my phone this whole time when I'm teaching people how not to be attached to their phone. Do as I say, not as I do. First technique is batch your communications. How many dings, texts, phone calls, and you know, Facebook messages, emails do you get per day? Who knows? Let's, it's probably dozens. So instead of being drawn to your phone dozens of times per day, you and I get to have much more control over our day and our mind when we have batches of communication. So in other words, we have designated times. Uh, throughout the day where we get to our communications rather than our communications getting to us and disrupting our day no matter what we're doing. So what this does from like a physiological perspective, about to sound smart, from a physiological perspective, this keeps you in a proactive state, not a reactive state. When your phone dings and you just react, like I'm going to take each message as it comes in and make someone else's priority my priority, that actually puts us in a stressful uh, response physiologically where we're reacting all the time. Uh, physiologically, when we're in a reactive state, that's actually a stress response. It's a threatened physiological hormonal position that we're in. Now, is it the same level of threat as if someone has a gun to your head? Probably not. But it's still a level of stress response we put ourselves in. The key word is we put ourselves in there if we consent to a reactive state. But being more proactive with our batched communications, where we might say at 11 a, from 11 a.m. to 11.30, I get to messages. Then 3 to 3.30, I get to messages. Uh, we all need to choose our own adventure, but the point is we choose our adventure when we get to our communications in batches. Mm, feel it. Second <laughs> technique is super simple, and it is give yourselves 30 minutes of time away from your phone first thing in the morning and last thing at night. So that means like after you shut your alarm off, you don't touch your phone for at least 30 minutes in the morning. And then last thing at night, like 30 minutes before you go to bed, you're not touching your phone. Why? This gives you more of your mind back. You know, our, our phones are inputs into our mind. So when we're being birthed into this miraculous gift called this new day, what if we gave ourselves at least a half an hour to get in touch with, what am I genuinely thinking today? What am I genuinely feeling today? What's important to me? 
not what's on my phone that I consume and that goes into my mind and then I trick myself into believing that's important to me just because it's the first stuff I saw during the day. And then same thing when we go to bed at night. Like, what are you taking to bed? Is a question we can ask ourselves. And if we're giving ourselves a 30-minute cleanse from our phone before we go to bed, then what we know is we're taking much less of this to bed with us. And we're taking more of ourselves to bed. Taking yourself to bed. Hmm, Everybody does it. Uh, The third technique that I'd ask you to consider is a technique of deliberate intent. I said that with like a really stern tone of voice. felt like my father yelling at you. Deliberate intent. What that means is, can you remind yourself before you touch your phone, get in touch with what is your deliberate intent? Why are you touching your phone? So in other words... Can you connect with what is your good reason for touching your phone? What are you looking for? And when you have a good reason, cool, go find it. But if you have zero reason for touching your phone, then our, then we jump on our phone. Typically, that that's just a pure mechanism of us disconnecting from ourselves. So what I like to tell people is hunt, don't browse. Know what you're looking for on your phone, have your reason, and go get it. But if we go into cyberspace, we're really in a browsing posture. It's kind of like they say, don't shop when you're hungry, because you're just browsing and you're, you're kind of in a way consuming everything. You're buying way more than yet what you would otherwise be hunting for when you're operating in a mindset of deliberate intent. Deliberate intent. The fourth technique I'd invite you to consider for giving you your mind back is a meditation technique. The FFF meditation, it's not copyrighted, but, you know, I coined it. FFF meditation means feel your freaking feelings meditation. By my estimates that have no root in reality, but it's definitely a fact that my opinion is that my estimates are 90% of the time when we jump on our device, we're doing it to disconnect from ourself. And when we're disconnecting from ourself, we're really looking to avoid feeling some kind of sensation, worry, emotion, or joy inside of us. We're looking to not feel what we're actually feeling. So until we bring bring ourselves into, I would say, not the heart set, but the mindset of the courageous warrior who has the courage and vulnerability to face ourselves and therefore actually feel what we're feeling, then we're always going to be using these mechanisms of escaping ourselves. And I think our phone can be a crowbar that leverages us away from ourselves if we're not used to feeling our freaking feelings. So that's why I ask people to do a deliberate practice of feeling your freaking feelings so we're not in a reactive, impulsive uh, uh, tendency to always be deflecting from our feelings. Getting to the point of this one, how to do the feel your freaking feelings technique meditation, technique meditation, apparently, is I'd ask you to sit where you're sitting and assuming you're not driving a car or operating a plane or a submarine, you can close your eyes and you take one minute and you find a body sensation, a feeling. 
and you focus on it and you breathe with it and you intentionally feel the freaking feeling for a minute while you're breathing. You're not trying to make it different. You're not trying to change it. You're not trying to get away from it. You're feeling it. So I invite people to do at least a minute every single day. And to me, this exercises our muscles and therefore strengthens our ability to stay in our integrity rather than always trying to escape ourselves. Our phone is one way we can do that. So with that said, thank you for joining me for this short teaching video on how to win your mind back. I'd ask you to uh, take a look at these four techniques that I laid out for you. Pick one or one of your own creation and test drive it and see what it's like to be more intimate with your mind. Talk to you guys next time. Man. I don't know how to handle him giving actual good advice. <laughs> Hunt, don't browse. That was good it, advice. It was good. It was yeah. very good. Yeah, yeah, great points. And speaking of good advice, actually, there was an article on Sot a while back, um, The Complete Guide to Breaking Your Smartphone Habit. And it gives, um, I mean, JP's was really good advice, um, but it, it actually gets into more detail on how you can do things like shutting down um, particular push notifications and uh, um, apps that will control uh, how often you have access to um, different features on your cell phone and things like that. So if, if people are actually interested in kind of uh, changing their smartphone into more of a dumb phone um, as a way to kind of win their mind back, uh, it, I think it's a good article worth checking out. I'll post the link in the chat. Well, one way to cool. make your phone more dumb aside from actually getting rid of your smartphone and getting a dumb phone, or you can just make calls and texts, but you can turn your data and turn your Wi-Fi off. Mm -hmm. If you have the willpower yeah. to do that. Yeah. Your data is off all the time unless I turn it on so I can look something up, and then I turn it back off. Mm. Yeah. I, I do that with uh, airplane mode too. I'll put mm -hmm. it in airplane mode, and that's par partially just to kind of not get exposed to, uh, yeah, you know, cell phone radiation and things like that. But um, also just because you know, keeping keeping it so it's it's not constantly a uh, distraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would, if I may, make a bold suggestion: use mm. your phone. Use your phone if you can in a way to allow yourself to experience nature more. So if I may explain what I mean, uh, sometimes I go uh, fishing uh, in the summer even while work is happening. But for a lot of my work, uh, I can do it on my phone if I'm not either doing something with like Photoshop or Illustrator or actually writing code. Everything else can be done on the phone. So I'll go out and go fishing for like three hours. In that time, I can answer messages as though I were at my desk, but then I can experience, you know, have that mm -hmm. time outside. And I was able to do that this summer like – two, three times a week and it worked totally hmm. fine. So Is I know I'm cheating? being, I'm being a little, I'm being a little bit facetious, <laughs> but I think you can cheat the system a little bit personally. <laughs> so, but that is also to say like, you know, be careful with it. I, what you said about airplane mode, I'll do that. Like if I'm, uh, you know, in the river with waders on everything, I have the phone in a dry case, it's either off or in airplane mode because it's right against my mm. body. So that's mm. something to think, you know, like if you have to check it, then you get out, turn it on, look something up, 
So yeah, yeah. Anyway, you could also leave your phone in a different room. If you're at home, mm-hmm. like a lot of people don't have mm-hmm. home phones anymore. They just have a cell phone. So treat your yeah. cell phone more like a home phone and just leave it in one room while you go off and live your life. And then if the phone rings, you can go in there and answer it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd say other things, you know, there seems to be a tendency too where people, even if they do kind of get out there and live their life and that kind of thing, the, the phone is always there. And they kind of use it as like almost an interface to reality. Like the phone has to be between them and reality. So it's like, oh, yeah, I have to take this picture. Oh, yeah, I have to, you know, take this video or something like that. It's like they're not they're not there experiencing things. They're kind of like in their mind. They're like, well, I'm going to have to post this to social media. So, you know, to validate my experience, you know, I can't just go and enjoy myself somewhere. It's like even going to a restaurant, I got to take a picture of my food mm-hmm. and let everybody, all of my followers know. It's yeah, I mean, at a concert, all you see is the phones in the air. Oh, yeah. that really pisses me off. Yeah. It's like, you know, just just experience something. Don't feel like, you know, it's not a valid experience if you can't, you know, share it with all your friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's you- recommendations for all of these different apps where you can kind of track your usage and or limit your usage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was in the article that Doug Doug posted. Uh But that still leaves you kind of tied to your phone. Yeah. Yeah. If you're using an app. Yeah. It might be a good way to get started on stuff like that. To maybe train you to be, you know, a little bit more cognizant of this stuff and maybe build your willpower a little bit. But yeah, I I agree. It's like, you know, people should be able to have the willpower to just kind of on their own decide they're not going to check their phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it maybe it's a good point. It may be an in for somebody who has a really hard time doing that. You have to put them in the context of the phone's environment, you know. Mm. So we have an app that will help you monitor your usage, and from that, maybe you can gain a little bit of ground. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, it does seem like kind of a weak solution. Yeah, although turning off push notifications, I think, is a good thing. I think that's a way to kind of break that kind of constant cycle of uh, dopamine hits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even just switching to the silent mode where it's not binging constantly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, I think we have some good things to move forward on. Uh, let's uh, let's go to Zoya's pet health segment for today, and then we'll we'll wrap up the show when we come back. Welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show. Do you have an itchy dog? Or perhaps your poochie has a chronic atopic dermatitis problem and you want to try a more natural solution? Well, this week I'm going to share with you a recording by Dr. Andrew Jones where he shares how a common spice that many people have in the kitchen can help with these problems. Listen up and have a great weekend. Do you have a dog that's chronically itchy, gets recurring ear infections? Well, you may be surprised to know that there's a herb that could be really effective that's probably already in your kitchen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my channel. For those of you who are new, welcome. First, say hi to Tula. She's got her little Christmas cut going on. She even came home with a nice little bandana. Many of you guys have commented saying you've got a dog with a chronic allergy, you know, where they're 
demonstrate a few things on Tula where you know they're constantly you know scratching at their side. All these red lesions in their belly, for instance. Maybe you've got a dog that chronically licks his or her paws. Perhaps recurring ear infections. All those are signs of an allergy. And the most common cause of allergy in our dogs is a thing called atopy or environmental allergy. And it's really difficult to treat. In this section of the video, I'm actually going to be discussing a lesser known herb that may be very helpful. I was recently reading a study in a journal of functional medicine. And in it, they talked about uh, a fairly common herb uh, for treating people that have allergies. Um, in particular, some of the respiratory ones, allergic conjunctivitis, allergic rhinitis. But what interested me is, first of all, there had been animal studies done on it. Secondly, um, with all my research, I can see that it's essentially very safe, non-toxic. Third, you know, I'm pretty excited to think this really could be a possibility uh, for our dogs, especially those dogs that have the chronic allergies. So I just went reaching into my spice drawer, pulled out some green looking spices. <clears throat> this one in particular smells really good. Often using it with chicken and turkey works great in a stuffing. Here it is. Rosemary. I love the smell of it. So one study was a placebo-controlled study where they're actually treating, treating people that have allergic conjunctivitis. Um, some, of the, uh, some of the respiratory signs, which is more common in people than our dogs. But regardless, much of the same mechanisms are going on in terms of you have, have this secondary inflammation as a result of a type of cell called an eosinophil, which degranulates, um, producing all that intense itching and some of that redness. Much the same that we're seeing in our dogs. So this one study and what they're actually using is, is a thing called rosemary. So this is the herb and the active ingredient in rosemary was called rosemarinic acid. And they were dosing these people. Um, and this was over a four week period. And what they found is majority of the participants that were able to take the rosemary had a pretty dramatic improvement and a decrease of their allergy symptoms. Which had me thinking, why are we not using it, uh, considering using something like this in our dogs? First, I went to the ASPCA's uh, list of toxic and non-toxic plants. Rosemary is considered 100% non-toxic, non-toxic to dogs, non-toxic to cats, non-toxic to horses. Next, I went to the University of Maryland's alternative uh, medicine site. It's a great site if you guys have yet to check it out. And they list some of the potential drug interactions for rosemary. They potentially, it could interfere with the anticoagulants. It's really generally not an issue with our pets. Um, second, there's a few drugs called ACE inhibitors. So in particular, that would be that they may interfere with or the functioning of that. So that would relate to those of you who might have a dog being treated for heart disease. You want to discuss that with your veterinarian. And third, they say rosemary may be uh, a moderate diuretic, maybe a little help draw some of the fluid out. So that might also be clinically important if you've got a dog with heart disease and they're on another diuretic you know, such as furosemide. So in terms of dose-wise, for people it was 150 milligrams minimum twice daily. So it's about one milligram per pound. So if you've got a 50 pound dog, you need, need to be on a minimum dose of 50 milligrams twice daily for four weeks before you could assess whether or not it's going to be working or not. 
some of the other good things about it, it's safe to give in conjunction with some of the other supplements, for instance, such as the essential fatty acids. So if you've got your dog, also have your dog on Flaxo official oil, you want to stay on that as well. How would you give it? Well, here it is here. This is, and if you guys have ever seen rosemary, right? It's, it's more like this herb. It grows on, looks, looks to me almost like a little fir branch that's growing straight out of the ground. I've got these prickly little needles that are in my hand. And as you can very well guess, Tula's not just going to readily consume it. Let's just try her just to show you how it's probably not going to work. Go grow a little Tula. Mmm. Let's try some rosemary. Mmm. Oh, look. Look how tasty that is. Oh, good. Smells good to me. Maybe not so much to Tula. So if she were to have an allergy and I were wanting to treat her for that, I'd be encouraging you guys to get the capsules. Um, so that's something where you can get at, at most of the pharmacies. I just stopped in before I made this video. I stopped into two of my local pharmacies. They didn't have it on stock. It's not a very commonly used in people yet as far as giving it as a, as a capsule formation. You definitely need to be staying away from the essential oils. You never want to be giving, especially generally period. Just don't be giving those essential oils orally. You can use them topically fine, but not giving it orally. I went online to have a look. I see that Nature's Way Swanson makes a rosemary extract. So that's what you'd be looking at. And as I said, you'd be looking at sort of those minimum, minimum doses of one milligram per pound twice daily. You need to be giving that for a full 30 days before you could assess whether it's working or not. By all means, discuss it with your veterinarian. Um, the one sort of caveat I did read is that you know, anyone who's maybe got a sensitive stomach, you want to start at a low dose. Um, so if you've got a dog that's prone to vomiting, vomiting, diarrhea, you maybe want to be a little bit more careful with that. Make sure you give it with some food as well. You're not giving it on an empty stomach. As you can see, Tula wasn't so crazy about just taking the, the rosemary leaves with more like the little, you know, almost like needles, uh, orally. So you really need to be giving it as a capsule. So just ordering it in, you know, through you know, one of those companies that I had mentioned. Well, that concludes this episode of Veterinary Secrets. Thanks again, you guys, for watching this episode. First, I'd love you for you to click down there to like this video, click up there to subscribe to my channel. Then lastly, if you've yet to do so, I encourage you to click that link directly in the box below. And then when you do that and you sign up for my newsletter, I can send you my free books and my free videos on how to heal your pets at home with my top natural remedies. All right. Thank you, Zoya. Mm -hmm. Sounds like those goats had some rosemary. <laughs> and they aren't using cell phones. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think we had some uh, some good points today and some good tactics. Um, I'm going to do my best to use a few of those. I like the idea of breaking the day up, and I think even in a context where you have messages that you have to check, you still don't have to check them every time they come in, the second mm -hmm. they come in. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of mm -hmm. the lesson I want to walk away with. But, Very um, good. If we've helped just one person. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, our co-host. <laughs> <laughs> this is the whole reason for doing this show, so I can work out my issues. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. Thank you for the uh, the thank you to the chatters for taking part in the uh, chat today, and to Davis for calling in. That was great. 
uh, and make sure to tune into the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Uh, we will be back next week, and we hope that Gabby will be feeling better at that time as well. So thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great weekend. And get a dumb phone. Yeah. Unplug. Dumb. Yeah. Dumb it up. Turn it off. <laughs>